Scripture reading this morning is Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. If you could all stand with me as we read these verses, Acts 9, verses 32 through the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he had arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Father, we ask now that you would bless your word to us as we seek to learn and grow by it this morning. I pray that you would Uh, Guide me in the words that I speak. Help me to be faithful to the text in front of us and help us, uh, each of us, to learn and grow in in more of what uh, you have for us this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing our study of the book of Acts this morning. We're finishing up here in chapter 9, where the focus of the book shifts back to Peter. Uh, He's really going to be the main character for the next three chapters And then from there, the book of Acts tracks with Paul pretty much the rest of the way. But for today, we have two stories very similar where Peter visits a church and performs a miracle that then results in many people being converted to Christ. The first is the account of Aeneas, who was a part of the church in Lydda. Uh, Lydda is today called Lod in Israel. If you ever get a chance to fly over to Israel, I promise you, you will go to Lod because that's where the airport is. Uh, right outside the city of Tel Aviv there in modern-day Israel. And to start with, before we get into the text, I want to remind you of how Acts 8 ended, because I think uh, we get an explanation there as to where these Christians came from in Lydda. Acts 8, verse 40, this is right after the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch. We read this, Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And so Philip, traveling from Azotus to Caesarea, along the way, stopping from town to town as he's preaching the gospel, uh, you can see there on the map that in between Azotus and Caesarea is the town of Joppa, and not very far over is Lydda. And so my guess is that that's where these Christians in Lydda came from. Uh, Most likely, they were converts from Philip's ministry as he was traveling through this region and preaching the gospel. Now back to our text, verse 32 of Acts 9 says that as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. 
Uh, we'll get into what happens at, in Lydda in a minute, but first, uh, why was Peter going here and there among them all? What is that all about? Well, first of all, uh, among them all, I take to be referring to the churches uh, all throughout Israel. So remember the previous verse, Acts 9 verse 31 says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, and so you see that it's referring there to these churches uh, throughout Galilee, Samaria, and Judea, which would be all of Israel. And so it seems that it's saying there that Peter was traveling throughout these churches uh, that were now established all over Israel. Uh, he was going from church to church, and I don't think this was just Peter, but rather all of the apostles uh, were doing this, traveling around from church to church, providing leadership. Keep in mind, uh, this is before the New Testament has been written down. Uh, today, we have a lot of teaching, not only on doctrinal matters, uh, but also practical instructions for what a church is to do, what we are to be, uh, how we follow Christ. Uh, the early church in this first century didn't have any of this written down. Uh, thus, there was a need for this kind of oversight. At first, it was easy for the apostles to oversee the church because it was only in Jerusalem. And so they were uh, leading and, and, and overseeing the church there. But now as it's scattering uh, throughout other regions, new churches are being planted. Uh, now the apostles need to kind of move around and keep tabs on what's happening here. And so the apostles are, are traveling from church to church, providing oversight, leadership. Uh, and one reason I think this is true of all of the apostles, not just Peter, is because this is precisely what the Apostle Paul will end up doing. Uh, on his first missionary journey, we're, we're getting ahead now in the book of Acts a bit, but Paul's going to be sent out in Acts 13. Uh, he's going to travel around, starting churches all throughout Asia Minor. And then on his sec second missionary journey, a few years later, he goes back to all of those churches that he had planted before. And he visits them, he, he provides leadership and oversight there. And so, uh, same sort of thing, this is sort of a, a part of the job description of the Apostles was to visit these various churches and oversee them. Also, over in Galatians 1, this will be a review from last week, uh, Saul, right after his conversion, he writes this, After three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Uh, well, where were the other apostles? Again, we, we can't know this for sure, but it seems like they weren't in Jerusalem. Apparently, all of the other apostles were traveling around, teaching, overseeing uh, the churches in these various places. Now, eventually, uh, Paul and Peter and James and John, they're all going to end up writing letters uh, that will be sent and dispersed from church to church, uh, giving teaching and instruction written down for them. That's largely what we have uh, in our New Testament today. Most of our New Testament books are uh, letters written by the apostles to various churches, and so 1st and 2nd Corinthians, those are written to the church at Corinth. Uh, Ephesians written to the church at Ephesus and so forth. So there's no longer today a need for these uh, apostolic leaders to be traveling around in this way. What we have today, uh, you know, we have what we need recorded by, uh, by them in Scripture. Okay, back to our text. Verse 32, Peter, he's traveling around from church to church, and it says there he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Uh, notice he comes to the saints at Lydda. So there's already a church established here, again, I think probably by Philip. Uh, saints, by the way, just means believers. That's not some sort of you know, special elevated title. Uh, saints are Christians, disciples of Jesus. Uh, all of us here today, hopefully, if you're a Christian, you are a saint. Verse 33 says, There he found a man named Aeneas, 
bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. I wondered a lot this week, why did Peter tell him to make his bed? I think the significance maybe is this. He'd been bedridden for eight years. He had been confined uh, to that bed, never was able to leave it. But Peter is telling him, you are completely healed. You won't be needing this. If you get up for a few minutes in the middle of the night, you plan on coming back, you wouldn't normally make your bed. Uh, Peter is thus expressing the complete healing of Aeneas. This man who had been confined to his bed for eight long years is now able to walk perfectly healed. And Peter always makes clear whenever he heals someone that the power isn't his, that it's Jesus who is doing the miracle. Notice he says there in verse 34, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter is merely an instrument in the hands of his Lord. Back in chapter 3, when Peter healed another paralyzed man, he said to him, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He made very clear that he was healing in the name and through the power of Christ, not in the name of Peter. Later in the same chapter, as all the people are amazed at this healing of the paralyzed man in Acts 3, uh, Peter says to them in in, in verse 12, uh, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And he goes on to explain from there, Jesus healed this man. I'm nothing. The power is all God's. Now, maybe you're wondering at this point, why are accounts like these included by Luke in this book? I think one of the main things that Luke wants to get across in our text this morning, and the reason he keeps recording these uh, miracles that are taking place, is to show us that the apostles performed the same kinds of miracles that Jesus did. Uh, Jesus healed people. The apostles healed people. Uh, Jesus raised people from the dead, so did the apostles. Luke wants uh, us to see the apostles as continuing the work of Christ and demonstrating that same miracle-working power that characterized the ministry of Jesus. Over in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes this. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so this ability to perform miracles was indicative of genuine apostleship. These signs proved to people that Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles were true apostles. Jesus had, in fact, appointed them as his spokesmen and leaders in the early church. They carried the authority of Christ himself. Now, this is important for many reasons, but one today would be uh, what we read in our Bibles, the words of Paul or Peter or John, these words carry every bit as much authority as if Jesus himself were speaking them. There's a movement today of people that call themselves red-letter Christians. Maybe you've heard of them. You know how some of the Bibles will put the words of Jesus in red print so you can kind of tell when he's talking? Uh, These these people in this movement basically view those as the really important parts of the Bible. Like the rest of Scripture, you can kind of take it or leave it. Uh, But the red words, those red letters, are what really matter. And I say to that, nonsense. Uh, Some of those red letters tell us to obey the black letters. Jesus gave his apostles authority to speak on his behalf. And so to disobey or minimize the teachings of the apostles is to disobey and minimize the teachings of Jesus. He commanded us to obey their words because when they wrote scripture, uh, they weren't just coming up with what they wrote. They were writing as they were being guided by God's spirit to write his words. 
Uh, Peter explains this in 2 Peter chapter 1, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. They don't just kind of conjure this up. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the Old and New Testament both together as Scripture uh, is given to us. It is, in fact, the words of God through the human instruments, uh, but it's not merely their words. And so to disobey uh, what the apostles have written, to disobey anything in Scripture, to pick and choose uh, what we want to believe and what we want to submit to uh, is, disobeying, is disobeying Christ, excuse me, because Jesus told us to submit our lives to Scripture. And so if we are to be Christians, followers of Christ, that necessarily means submitting to the teachings of his apostles. We read of the early church in Acts chapter 2 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We ought to do the same today, devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, which we have recorded in our New Testament. Uh, maybe you've never heard of red-letter Christianity. Maybe that's a new concept, but I bring it up because it's becoming more and more prevalent today. Uh, this movement of people saying, basically, ignore the rest of the Bible, only focus on the teachings of Jesus. And frankly, if you want to know why is this happening today, uh, it's because of the issue of homosexuality, because Jesus never directly addressed that. It's all over the rest of the Bible, but Jesus never spoke on that uh, directly, specifically. And so in today's culture, as we shift on this and we want to be, you know, we want to claim to be Christians and also embrace homosexuality as acceptable, uh, that movement has arisen as a result, trying to divorce Jesus' words from the rest of Scripture, throw out the rest and focus on uh, the red letters. But again, Jesus himself affirmed the Old Testament as God's word to us. Jesus himself gave authority to his apostles uh, to teach and speak on his behalf, and he told his followers to listen and obey their words, just as if it was coming from him directly. And so rejecting what Paul wrote is simply disobeying Christ. You cannot claim to be a Christian and reject the teachings of Jesus about Scripture. So the apostles, they performed uh, the same kinds of miracles as Jesus. I think this was God's way of demonstrating uh, that the work of Christ was being continued through these apostles. Uh, Luke already made this point very clear back at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the first book, o o Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So notice in verse 1 that Luke says in the first book, that's the Gospel of Luke, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach, which means the book of Acts, the sequel, is the rest of what Jesus did and taught. And he did this through the apostles that he had chosen. And that's why I think Luke includes miracles like this, the healing of Aeneas, to reinforce the point that Peter and the other apostles are continuing the work of Jesus, doing the same things that he was doing, and they carry the same authority as Christ. Well, after Aeneas was healed and he's able to walk again, he became a, a living, walking example of the power of Christ. And verse 35 says, All the residents of Lydda, that's the city, and Sharon, that's the region, saw him, and they turned to the Lord. A massive revival took place here in Lydda and Sharon. Uh, people were saved. And look at the language that's used there. They turned to the Lord. I really like that description. That's exactly what true conversion is. It's not enough uh, to say, I believe in God. Uh, Satan believes in God. It's not enough to say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. That's great, but that's not conversion. True salvation is always a turning 
turning from our sin, turning from ourselves, from living however we want, turning from false religions or other gods in some cases. And it's turning away from all of that and to Christ. He becomes your Lord. You become his servant. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Becoming a Christian means, yes, you believe Jesus died, he rose again, you trust in him for salvation, but it also means you turn around and you start living your life for him. You submit to the lordship of Christ. He becomes your king, you become his subject. That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. When these people saw the miracle of Aeneas' healing, they turned to the Lord. Well, this brings us to the next miracle recorded here, verse 36. It says, in Joppa... Uh, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Uh, interestingly, that's the word for gazelle. Uh, she was full of good works and acts of charity. So Dorcas was a godly lady here in Joppa, a city about 10 miles away from where Peter's at in Lydda. She was a disciple of Christ, not an apostle. Disciples, again, are just followers of Jesus like you and I. She had a reputation for loving others. Serving people, as we'll see in a minute, she made clothes for people in the church who needed them. Verse 37 says that while Peter was over in Lydda in those days, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. When he had arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside. Now, maybe this isn't how this happened, but I imagine this as you know, a bunch of ladies, uh, you know, 40 different widows in the room. They're all kind of crying and showing him all of the clothes. And he says, everybody out. Uh, maybe that's not how it happened. But anyway, verse 40, he put them all outside. He knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Now, this is remarkably similar uh, to the healing of, G of Jairus' daughter back in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus uh, heals that uh, young lady. I'm going to go read that account. Just see if you can spot all of the similarities between these two miracles. Uh, Jesus in Mark 5, he's been brought to the home of this little girl who has died. Verse 37 says, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother, and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began, uh, began walking. Uh, Talitha kumai. Peter in Aramaic said Tabitha kumai. One letter difference uh, between the two statements here in the original language. The point again is that Peter has the authority of Christ to heal. He is continuing the ministry of Jesus. And God is uh, bearing witness to him that he is a true apostle by these miracles. Let's finish up the text here, back to that, uh, verse 40. It says, Peter put them all outside. He knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, 
he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And this leads into the next chapter. One of the key events in the book of Acts is the conversion of Cornelius, the first a Gentile convert to Christ. Uh, Peter ends up meeting him while he's staying here at Simon the Tanner's house uh, in Joppa. But that's next week. I'm getting ahead of myself. For this morning, uh, what do we learn from a text like this? What are the takeaways? First of all, God cares about people. He could have proven the truth of the gospel and the authority of the apostles in many ways. Uh, he could make them walk on water or command the weather or uh, you know, fly up in the air and spin around. But instead, the miracles that Jesus did, the miracles the apostles performed, were almost always helping people, especially healing those who were sick, casting demons out of those who were uh, possessed. God cares about people. At the same time, the healings were never an end in themselves. It was always a precursor to the preaching of the gospel. Uh, the goal of the church wasn't just to go around healing all the sick people, raising all the dead people, and caring for their physical needs. The goal of the church in the book of Acts was to get people to give their lives to Christ, to pledge their allegiance to him as Lord. The miracles were a tool in that process. Peter would perform a miracle. A word would spread about it. There would be uh, a ready audience for his message that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and they could be forgiven if they would repent and turn to Christ. That was always the goal of the miracles. We see this very clearly in our text. After the healing of Aeneas, verse 35 says, the result was all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Again, in verse 42, after Dorcas is raised from the dead, it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. This was the whole point. The healings were done to draw people to Christ. And it's not just in this text, it's all over the New Testament. Uh, think of another uh, raising from the dead of, of Lazarus, famously, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Verse uh, 43 of John 11 says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus is you know, buried in the tomb. Uh, the man who had died came out, uh, and his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. This was always the goal of the miracles. It wasn't just uh, to do a nice thing for Lazarus. I mean, Lazarus died again, okay? It helped him out temporarily, but the goal was to get people to believe in Christ. Uh, when Peter gave sight to the blind man in Acts chapter 3, he then proceeded to preach the gospel to the crowds. Uh, I'm sorry, this was the paralyzed man, Acts 3. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Acts 4, verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This is the end of that miracle of the, the, uh, the healing of the paralyzed man. And so these healings were not the end goal. The conversion of people to Christ was the goal. And so for us today, I think the point would be the goal of the church is to preach the gospel to the world and make disciples of Jesus. That is our mission. That is why we exist as a church. Now, Christians ought to care about suffering. We do care about people who have no food, people who are sick, those who are struggling with addictions. We should care about those things and seek to help people. We ought to love others enough to do what we can to bless them. Again, in our culture, that's not going to be you know, us raising people from the dead. Uh, but things like giving food to the hungry and shelter to those who need it, caring for people, there's nothing wrong with those things. Uh, we ought to love others enough to do what we can to be a blessing to them. 
But the thing that people need most is Christ. They need their sins forgiven and their lives transformed by the gospel. And so the goal of the church must remain in focus. We care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. We want to help people, but we especially want to help them spiritually. Uh, by the way, I'll just mention this in passing. Everywhere that Christianity goes, those other things improve as a byproduct. Education improves, crime reduces, hospitals, orphanages, food pantries are all built and established. Uh, That's why so many, even today in America, so many of the hospitals and things, you look at them and say First Methodist Hospital or whatever. They were started by Christians. Christianity leads to human flourishing. I've said before, if you took a map of the world and highlighted in one color all of the countries where uh, Protestantism has had a deep impact and and really has been the dominant uh, influence in that culture, And then you highlight it in another color, all the countries where Catholicism has had a dominant impact. And then in a third color, you highlight all the countries where other religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, atheism, whatever, Islam. uh, If you highlighted those in a third color, you would be looking at the first, second, and third world countries, respectively. I think some of that is God's blessing on a people who follow him. But there's also just the practical fact that everywhere that the teachings of the Bible are embraced, The living conditions end up improving. Uh, The laws become more just. Families thrive because God knows how a society will function best. He created the world and all of us. Uh, He knows what's good for us and what will lead to human flourishing. And so the the, the other side of that coin is the more that a, a society rejects Scripture and the authority of God over us as a country, which is exactly uh, what's been happening in America in the last several decades— The further we move away from Scripture being the uh, guiding influence of our society, the more chaos and violence and confusion takes its place. The options are Christ or chaos. So Christians have always been involved in helping the hurting, and we should. We're commanded to do so. But our primary task in the world is to give people the ultimate hope, the salvation that they need more than anything else. Dorcas died again. Aeneas died too. Uh, It's great that Peter healed them and improved their lives for a time, but that's very temporary if you think about it in comparison uh, to the nearly 2,000 years since they died. When you think of how short our lives are and how long eternity is, the best way to love someone is to show them how they can have eternal life. Jesus didn't come into the world, excuse me, Jesus did not come into the world to heal a few people Uh, feed a few people, and then send out his followers to do the same. Uh, That wasn't the point. Here is why Jesus said that he came, Mark 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he says, I came to to die on the cross to give my life as a ransom. Uh, Luke 5, 32, he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus came to call sinners to repent, How about John 3, 16? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God loved the world. He sent Christ in order that the world would be saved by believing in him. Acts 3, verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. 
This is why Jesus came. One more. Uh, Jesus said in John 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is why Jesus came. To give us eternal life. To give us abundant life. To turn us from our lostness and sin. To turn us to him. And now this is our job to continue the work of Christ. To carry on his mission in the world. One final text this morning, back to 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now again, please don't hear this as being uh, critical of helping people's physical needs. We ought to be doing those things. Nothing demonstrates the love of Christ in us more than when we sacrifice for the needs of others. We just have to recognize that our ultimate goal for each person we minister to shouldn't just be to give them food and shelter and health for this temporary fleeting life, but rather that they would find forgiveness and new life in Jesus. As Paul said in those verses, we have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. We go out into the world telling others how they can be made right with God. And so as ambassadors for Christ, we ought to be urging people to be reconciled to their creator.